When in the in our experience of the church uh, was the church maybe in in a worse position? I don't think it is. I, I can't. Th- I can't think of a one. Think about what's happening right at this moment that we're talking about. Joseph has just uh, emerged from Liberty Jail. Uh, half of the twelve is either dead or apostatized. Zion has fallen. The people are scattered. Uh, they're scattered all across the face of Missouri in the middle of the winter. Uh, those that have been able to keep moving made it to Illinois and the good people especially of Quincy Illinois are taking them in but we're scattered all across um, and and we really don't have a place to be um, a, a lot of people have apostatized there have been a number of excommunications uh, some of our um, we're going to talk about a little bit more some of the brethren we counted on the most have actually kind of turned gone turncoat on us and supplied information to the mob. Okay? So it's about as bad as it can get. Okay? If you're Joseph Smith rolling out of jail, how are you feeling? After five months of captivity. Okay? Rough spot. This is this is the church really at its maybe at its most crisis mode. The closest it comes to this is is maybe right after the prophet dies and there's a succession thing. We'll, we'll talk about that in uh, January. But uh, this is hard times. Now, on top of that, though, I, I want you to uh, as I was thinking about today, um, we're about to see a change in the prophet. So let me just ask generally, just kind of in your own mind, um, do people change? And if they do change, how do they change? What causes people, you know, does a shepherd, or shepherd, does a leopard (laughs) ever lose his spots? Does a shepherd ever lose his cane? I don't know. Probably. In, In your mind, what causes people to change from where they are to doing something different? Just kind of general. Deep love. That's the only way that people can truly change. Sometimes love will, will produce... That they a, love something so much that they will make a change. Or it, they are loved so much that they will make a change. Sure. By the way, if you're not sure that love changes, watch every Pixar movie. Right. <laughs> and, and even the Marvel movies. is like, okay, love wins out. We will make it through the fog because there's love there. Okay, because it's the strongest force in the universe. It's Christ-like love, I meant to say. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And the scriptures talk about a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's what it takes to really change. You know, we can make small changes, you know, through self-discipline and stuff like that. But the real radical change is that where we have a completely different view of life. Sure. And, uh, you know, the heart represents what we, what we want. That's, a, that's an intellectual thing. And, a, and you know the word contrite, it literally means bruised. You know, and spirit is what motivates us. And so if we no longer know what we want, and, and we have no idea how to do it or go about it in you know, a bruised spirit, then we're on our knees and we're ready to listen. And that's when we can... So, so there's a humility that, that sometimes sets us up to be, to, to be changed. Okay. I, I think that's true. Yeah. 
if they're pragmatic enough, they realize that what they're doing isn't working. Yeah. And it's time, you know, it's, it's time to change because the goal... Yeah, she's saying a lot of times people change because they finally recognize that what they're doing isn't working. In <laughs> um, straight-up psychological terms, I'm always saying we do what works and we stop doing what doesn't work. Unless somehow it isn't working, but we think it's working. <laughs> so we will stubbornly keep doing what we're doing because we think it's working. Um, but it, you're right. We have to recognize that it isn't working. So there has to be a willingness and a choice to do that. Yeah. yeah I, traumatic events, tragedies. Um, I, in my mind, people will either curse God and die or turn to him for help and support. And yeah. I think as children grow up. Parents do feel more a sense of responsibility to teach and to be example. And isn't that inter- that trauma hits, and you will watch people say, "Are they going to curse God, or are they going to trust God?" And that comes. There's a prior understanding of belief uh, about maybe what's going on. It's probably more the why than the how. Yeah. Why would people take the time to change? We don't. Do we want to change? Oh heck no. We like being what we're doing. It may even be uncomfortable. We may not like much what's going on in our life, but it is familiar. So we keep doing what we're doing, and that's probably a, a better question. Why would people take the time? Can they change? We believe they can. Why would they change is probably even a better question. What purpose would be behind? What do they believe would be better in their life if they make the shift? Okay? Yeah. You call it bitterness is what we feel when we keep trying to do things that don't work. You know, we, we don't understand it. It's frustrating. You know, I'm doing all the right things, but why do I, why am I not happier? Why is this not working? Yeah. That is the goal of bitterness, I think. I think I've mentioned that uh, for, for years in a, in a very kind of cruel therapist sort of way. I used to take people out. I, I had a, I run outdoors ropes courses because uh, I was trying to initiate change, kind of move the ball a little bit here. So so one of the things that I did was that I, I had uh, something that a lot of you guys have probably seen is the blind maze uh, where I'd run the rope through the woods and over creeks and all over the place and then I would blindfold them and I'd say put them at the beginning of the rope and say this is your life follow this rope wherever it leads and you'll know that you're where you're supposed to be when there's somebody there for you and send them off and so then they're kind of doing this number and everything. And I, I clearly remember uh, two people. One uh, was a, an alcoholic um, that I'd taken, the, I'd taken the rope down under this massive big log down underneath. And there was no way that you could hold on to the rope here. You're going to have to let go of the rope to kind of reach over and grab the other side. Um, and I, I, wa- I stood there kind of a few feet away from him watching it when he got there and he was feeling it and he couldn't get it and everything. And then he just plopped down and sat. He's like, I'm not going to go anywhere. I guess I'll just stay right here. And boy, did we have a great conversation afterwards about, tell me how this isn't like your life. Tell me how you, when you get there, you just surrender, you give up, and that's when you turn to the bottle because I, you can't win. And somehow you've decided when life gets really hard, I'm done, and I will just sit here and kind of wait to be rescued or get drunk. One of the two. Um, I had another lady that was walking along 
and she was doing actually fairly well and I thought oh she's actually kind of doing too well I think so I, I, I grabbed a, a burlap bag that I had and I ran over and I filled it with a bunch of rocks <laughs> and then I, I kind of slipped up behind her while she's kind of moving along and I took the bag and I put it in her hand and I said oh you just became depressed <laughs> And so now for the next few minutes I watch, and it was really heavy, I must have had like 50 pounds of rocks in there. She's hauling this thing along, you know, and we'd, she'd get, she got to that log, and she'd like, you can put it over the top of that thing and keep on following this, ro this rope. Uh, and at some point she kind of, she, she was, I was, I was watching her, I was so fascinated by this whole thing. There's a moment when she stops and she goes, I am so tired of carrying this thing and she just <laughs> dropped it and she started walking and then she burst into tears <laughs> and I just whispered in her ear what just happened she says I'm tired yeah you are what did we have a great conversation after that event with her well, there has to be a why. There has to be a reason for people to change. And you're hearing it. Sometimes it's trauma. Sometimes a broken heart, contrite spirit. And you never know what it is that's going to come along to create the change. But the idea is that we change. The idea is that we recognize the things in our life that aren't working. And then we're willing to try something different. Okay? And I think that's, I think for a number of people that's hard. Now, we talk about... We talk about the fact that for the prophet Joseph, the man that walked into liberty in the first part of December, 1838, was not the man that left liberty late March, 1839, five months later. He was a different person. He had changed. He would forever be different. And we're going to talk about that because I think part of watching his growth also gives us a chance to look at our own selves and our own lives and what causes us to change. That's why this is so applicable. Um, so let me, to, to kind of set that up a little bit, I want to actually go back to a couple, of, there, was, there was one more letter. We talked last time about the, the March 20th letter uh, from which, from which uh, section 121 was drawn. Two days later, uh, March 22nd, they will write a second letter from which section 122 and 123 will be taken. And then they'll be allowed to escape on the 25th. So this is just like three days before they actually are able to, to get away. But I want, you to, I want you to notice in this letter, again to the church, and this is not the part that made it into the Doctrine and Covenants, but I think this is a view into Joseph. This is a chance to kind of see where he is with this. So... Uh, bear with me, there's a, there's a lot here. He says, and again, speaking to the church, I would further suggest the impropriety of the organization of bands or companies by covenants or oaths or penalties. Who's he referring to? The Danites. Samson Avard's uh, group of militants that were doing preemptive strikes up into Davis County especially and burning property and kind of taking property and bringing it back to the Bishop's storehouse uh, to kind of make up for the property that had been lost by everybody else. But they were out burning property uh, and, and antagonizing the countryside uh, in the, and, and really give an excuse for even further atrocities on the 
part of the mob. The other thing that they were doing is that they were using Joseph as kind of this figurehead. They were using him as the reason to say, are you loyal to Joseph Smith? If you're not loyal to Joseph Smith, we're kicking you out of here. If you are loyal, keep your mouth shut and come with us and go burn barns. And so there were a number of people that were put in this uh, predicament, Thomas Marsh being one, that says, I don't countenance what we're doing up there, but if I go against Avard and the gang, I may get run out of town like Oliver Cowdery did. So they were put in this position of saying, and we're going to bind you by oaths and covenants, that, that we're going to be here together, we're going to stand for each other while we go burn barns. And so you get this, so, so there was a, this fever going on here about how much do we stand up against these, and Joseph was silent. Joseph was, no, was not stepping up on this, okay? Now... I suggest the impropriety in the organization of bands or companies by covenants or oaths. This is, but let the time past of our experience and suffering by the wickedness of Dr. Avard suffice. And let our covenant be that of the everlasting covenant that's contained in Holy Writ and the things that God has revealed to us. Now, he's speaking to people that had been in the school of the prophets where we have bound ourselves as brethren in righteousness. They had they declared oaths to one another. I, I promise to be your brother and to stand by you. There were covenants and oaths, but it was done in a divine way to righteousness and to love, not to I stand as an oath and covenant while we go destroy farms. That's a much different kind of thing. So, let our covenant be the everlasting covenants contained in holy writ and the things which God hath revealed to us. Pure friendship always weakens the very moment when you undertake to make it stronger by penal oaths and secrecy. And then listen to this. Listen to this prophet who sat for five months in a, in a basement. Your humble servant of servants, me, intend from henceforth to disappropriate disapprobate everything that is not in accordance with the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and is not a bold and frank and upright nature. What's he saying? I'll, I will be silent no more. I made a mistake. I should have stood up and stopped this, but I didn't. I was afraid of Avard, basically. Remember that the Lord, at early, early in, in the restoration, the Lord is, is talking to Joseph and saying, too many times have you been swayed by other people, by the arm of men. This is one of those times that he did this. And, and part of what you will see, the Joseph that walks out of liberty says, I will not be silent anymore, and I will not be a silent um, figurehead. I will be a vocal out front leader and you will know exactly where I stand and I will take charge. So this is why the Joseph that comes out of here ultimately will be the mayor of, of uh, Nauvoo. He will be the, uh, the commanding general of the, of the Nauvoo Legion. 
Uh, and six months from this moment that he's here, he's sitting in the White House talking to the president. The guy that walks out of liberty is forever different, and he will not be silent anymore. And you, and you get to see the root of it right there where he says, um, your humble servant or servants in Ted from henceforth to do everything in accordance to the fullness of the gospel. It's kind of a repentant moment for him. Okay? Now, does that sound like broken heart, contrite spirit? Yeah, I think so. Your servants will not hold their peace as in times past when they see iniquity beginning to rear its head for fear of traitors or the consequences that shall flow by reproving those who creep in unawares that they may get something to destroy the flock. We believe that the experience of the saints in times past has been sufficient that they will from henceforth be always ready to obey the truth without having men's person in admiration because of advantage. It is expedient that we should be aware of these things. I think for five months he's saying, what would I have done different? I should have, I should have said something. I should have stepped up. Now, I understand it. Everything so far in Joseph's experience, what has been his role in the church? As what? Translator. He's a translator. He's a translator of ancient records. Okay. What else? He was a revelator. He was getting revelations from the Lord. Okay. I'm receiving all of these things. What else? He was the first elder, which means I'm administering the, the ordinances, I'm revealing the ordinances, and I'm leading us, and so I'm taking care of all of these things. What did he not see himself as? The, the kind of the out front leader, and? But for him, prophet meant revelator, translator, revealer, ordinances, those kind of things. He did not see prophet as spokesperson, out front leader, mayor. He didn't see that. And, and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you how far this goes. Um, short, during this time, as, as the brethren go off to uh, England, we're going to talk a lot about that next week, um, Parley Pratt writes, as one of the apostles, writes a book, The Key to Theology. Uh, and it was widely read and widely distributed uh, and, and still pretty good. Now, Parley's pretty literal. You know, he's, he's seen theology through the eyes of a, of a 19th century guy. He's pretty literal in his things, you know, like, like women will have, you know, babies for eternity kind of thing. It'll be like a nine-month gestation, just like it's here. It takes you nine months to pop out a spirit baby. <laughs> you know, he's just, that's the way he's looking at it. It's here, so it's going to be there. He's pretty literal, okay? That's part of it, okay? But in the, in the book, The Key to Theology, the first hundred pages of that book never mentioned Joseph Smith. Finally, a hundred pages into this book, he will finally say, there have been visions and revelations and an angel has been heard. But still, Joseph Smith is never named. Part of what happened, Joseph had kind of did not want to be out front. 
Most people sitting in Quincy never knew about the first vision. Let that sink in for just a sec. They knew about Moroni. They knew about the Book of Mormon. They did not know about the first vision. Joseph kept saying, it's not about me. It's, I don't want it to make it about me. It is about the Lord to his people. I'm simply the messenger. Don't make it about me. The song that we sang this morning, written by W.W. Phelps. We're going to talk about W.W. Phelps in just a second. Um, again, I think he would cringe a bit. We love the song. I love the song. Joseph would say, it's, about, it's not about me. But So he tried to disappear so much into the revelations that partly took his key from that and going, well, then we kind of leave him out of the process. Yeah, there's all about revelations that have come without mentioning the revelator. So that, there was a tendency to kind of downplay and it finally Joseph comes out and says my story also needs to be told because it is part and parcel of this, of this restoration. So one of the first things he will do when he comes out is he's going to grab James Mulholland aside and say let's finish the history so we can get, so we can get this published. The history that now exists in our Pearl of Great Price. That history wasn't out there yet. Okay. So, here's Joseph then. He says, it's expedient then. Uh, I need to step up. And we ought always to be aware of the prejudices which sometimes so strangely presented themselves and are so congenial to human nature against our neighbors and brethren of the world who choose to differ with us in opinion and matters of faith. Our religion is between us and our God. Their religion is between them and their God. Okay, say that in different terms. What's he saying? Everyone has a right to worship the First of all, they should, they should have a chance to worship however they want to. We're not going to try to cram the gospel down their throat. We should always be aware of those prejudices which sometimes so strangely presented themselves. Man, our doctrines sound weird. <laughs> Don't be surprised when you try and preach it that people think that we're really kind of strange. Be aware of that. It sounds logical to us. Okay? Yeah. He's saying too, you don't persecute other people because of their religion. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so congenial to human nature against our neighbors and friends. Yeah, in other words, we're going to handle this differently in the future. We're going to be kinder. Okay. All right. So you, you get it? Can you can you hear the prophet changing? You, you watch this transformation, and to his everlasting credit, here's someone who says, "I recognize what I've done. I recognize that we need to change, and I recognize any role that I might have played in this. And I promise things will be different, and they were." Okay. Now, let me show one other side, and this is a side of him that, again, I think he might be a little horrified to find out that this was actually now published widely, because this would be, um, 
in, in these days, most of the letters coming out, we find under the, uh, the signature, the, the, the handwriting is in John Whitmer, or the history is written in, the, in James Mulholland, W.W. Uh, Phelps, and Wilford Woodruff did a lot of writing. So Joseph would generally dictate these things to a scribe, and then he would sign it, and they would send it off, send the letter off. In those days, one of the... Um, the conventions of the time is that if you're separated from your husband or wife, there was something great value of writing it in your own handwriting. They would be holding something that they wrote themselves, that you could read and reread, and it's, it's like part of them. Okay, so he dictates letters to the church, like this one. Now he's going to write one to Emma. And it's going to be in his own handwriting. Nobody is writing this but Joseph. And I want you to, but I want you to hear another side of him. This letter is April 4th. And as to yourself, if you want to know how much I want to see you, examine your feelings. How much you want to see me and judge for yourself, I would gladly walk from here to you barefoot and bareheaded and half-naked to see you and think it a great pleasure and never count it toil but do not think I am babyish for I do not feel so. You just get this kind of this tender I miss Emma and I'm going to write this and I'm going to put that out there and then listen to, but he has a fear listen to what his fear is my heart has often been exceedingly sorrowful when I have thought of these things for many considerations one thing let me admonish you by way of my duty and not be self-willed either harbor a spirit of revenge and remember that he who is my enemy is yours also I'm sorry the things that have happened to you I'm sorry of what you've gone through and then he says, and never give up an old tried friend who has waited through all manner of toil for your sake and throw him away because fools may tell you he has some faults. What are you hearing? Do you still love me? Do you, do you still love me? And when you're going to hear people railing against me, don't throw me overboard. Because I do have faults. Don't dump me <laughs> in the middle of all of this. I th isn't that interesting that you have this really kind of tender moment with him that says, after all we've been through, don't, don't dump me, please. I need you. And it's, it, it's a very, very tender letter as far as that goes. And it gives you a sense of just how much uh, he loved and how deeply he loved. Uh, now, part part of the way, part of the way, isn't that a, an example of a kind of a broken heart and contrite spirit? There's no pride there that just says, "I have faults, man. Don't leave me. I need you. Help me. Don't leave me alone." Yeah. It's also vulnerable. Which, and vulnerable. Um, contrite spirit, um, broken heart is being vulnerable. Yes. Right. Okay. Now. Huh. I debated on this one. I did. 
and I think I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, at this point in his life, probably uh, few uh, d fewer defections hurt him more than W.W. Phelps did. W.W. Phelps, uh, we mentioned before, was kind of a, uh, to use the term that they were using for him, kind of a quirky bird. <laughs> Uh, speckled bird was what Joseph Smith Sr. called him in, in his uh, patriarchal blessing, meaning you're kind of odd. <laughs> and W.W. Phelps was kind of odd. Uh, and socially not always really aware of things, but, but it, he, he studied it with Joseph the Book of Abraham. Uh, he dug through things. Uh, he just was, was on fire and passionate about things. And when the Samson Avard thing is going on there and, and Phelps is objecting to what's going on, Phelps is one of those that was run out of town. Uh, actually did supply some information to the to the uh, Missouri militia about where the direction of the the militants were going uh, and Joseph was not just hurt by that he was hurt a lot by that uh, by WW Phelps and um, I want to I want to give you a, a sense um, <clears throat> of how badly he was hurt uh, let's see let me do this I should have had this more teed up, but um, we go to documents in Joseph Smith papers. Here's eighteen thirty nine. Okay, um, let me let me set this up. Um, so W.W. W. Phelps is is run out of town. Um, he's still now he's kind of out of the church. He gets excommunicated, but he's still looking out for the saints. So he's he even after the saints are gone now, he's he, there's some property of of uh, Joseph Smith Senior that W.W. W. Phelps is trying to help acquire. He's still trying to help. And I don't think he senses the depth of how badly Joseph is hurt. So we think about W.W. Phelps and uh, all of the, the, the Spirit of God like a fire is burning and praise to the man and the funeral speech and everything that W.W. Phelps was. Okay, Here, So here's the letter as Joseph is getting out. And one of the first things, so he gets this letter from Phelps saying, Hey, I found some property for Joseph Smith Sr. Uh, here's Joseph's letter. To him. In answer to yours of April twenty-third, we have we have to say that we shall feel obliged by your not making yourself officious concerning any part of our business in the future. We shall be glad if you can make a living off of minding your own affairs. You see why he hesitated. Um, 
and we desire as far as you are concerned to be left to manage yours as well as we can. We would rather lose our properties than be molested by such interference and we consider that we have already experienced much over the efficiousness at your hand. Concerning men and things pertaining to our concerns, we now request once and for all that you will avoid all interference in our business and affairs from this time henceforth and forever. Joseph Smith. Now, what do you hear in, the, in all of that? Yes. I think it's totally appropriate in this situation to be very straightforward with him. Yeah. I don't feel like he was being mean, and it was his first experience of being straightforward. And this is he, kind of the new him. Yeah. yeah. But what else are you hearing? Somebody said it. Hurt. Hurt. Yes, yes. Of course. That, that, again, if we always look at anger as kind of the secondary emotion, and if you dig underneath anger, you always get to uh, fear or pain underneath that. He's hurting. He's, he loved Phelps for all of his weirdness. Um, even, even by the time he, uh, Phelps got to, um, to Salt Lake, he always identified himself, sometimes in his letters at the bottom, as uh, the king's jester. Uh, and the king jester meant it's my job to explain the things the king is saying in maybe a little better language. <laughs> he, he betrayed Joseph. Huge. He hurt him bad. That's why when we talk about when they get to Nauvoo and finally he's going to say, I want to come back in full fellowship. And Joseph is going to ask the saints, are you willing to take W.W. Phelps back? And, and, and they're going to say yes. And then he's going to write that famous letter uh, about, we've, we've, you ran us through hell. We've been hurt to the nth degree. But, dear brother, since the war has passed, friends at first are friends again at last. Come back. And within a week of him arriving back in town, he's back working as Joseph's scribe. So, so part of this largeness and forgiveness of heart for somebody who's hurting this bad, I just want you to see the scope of, of Joseph's contriteness and the willing to accept honest forgiveness on, on the part of W.W. Phelps. Okay? That, that's just an amazing level that, that is just hard, I think, to, to fathom. So... Uh, comments on that. Oh, and by the, so by the way, when when Joseph is killed, and they and they perform the funeral, what song do they sing at the funeral? Praise, Praise to the man. Who gives the funeral address? W. W. Phelps. Yeah. So. So to kind of go from here gives you this sense, kind of the bit of the volatility, and this this vulnerable, broken heart can also be really hurt when he when this letter shows up. So, all right. Let's see where are we. All right. Now, 
So here come, so, so now they have some unfinished business here. It's kind of a fascinating little thing here that in, uh, on July 8th, 1838, uh, the Lord had said, the next summer I want the twelve to go to England. In the midst of all of this, we're going to send the twelve off to England. And they're supposed to leave from where? The Far West Temple site on April 26, 1839. Okay. Now, what happens between July 8th, 1838 and April 1829? We're cast out of Missouri. Now what do we do? The Lord is saying, we need to do this. Uh, Joseph, at the time they're trying to make a decision here, Joseph is still in jail. Now guess who else steps up at this moment? Brigham Young. Thomas Marsh had apostatized. Uh, David W. Patton, who was next in line, had been killed at Crooked River. Brigham Young was next up, and he stood up. This was Brigham's moment. And he gathered the twelve together, and they said, Well, we're no longer in Missouri. We should just go to England. First of all, should we go to England? Yes, the Lord commanded us to go to England. Next, well, why would we go backwards, <laughs> hundreds of miles, to go to the Far West Temple site? Brigham said, because the Lord required us this of us. Now there's only a handful of us. Half the twelve is gone. We will gather who we have, and, and they decide the first part of April, we're going back to far west to the temple site so we can take our leave from the temple site the way the Lord directed us. And we are going. Okay? Uh, I know that shortly after they crossed over Quincy, on the other side of the river was one of the twelve, Johnny Page. Um, and Johnny Page's wagon is, is broken down right there. And Brigham says, you're part of the twelve, we're going back to far west. And Page says, you guys are nuts. <laughs> yes, we're going back the way that the Lord has directed it to do it. We will follow the Lord's commandments. Page leaves his wagon there, joins the twelve, and about twenty others. So there's about twenty total that go back all the way to, to the Far West Temple site. Now what do you do? How do you do this? It's, it's hostile territory. Sneak. You're behind enemy lines. We're going to sneak in there, we're going to go two or three at a time, and we'll kind of scatter around in here, and then when are we going to show up at the Far West Temple site? Just after midnight. Just light in here. Okay? Uh, so just after midnight they show up. Uh, they bring with them two men. Uh, Wilford Woodruff and George A. Smith. Both of which had been suggested by the prophet Joseph to be uh, added to the twelve to make up for the defections. That, By the way, they also needed this so they'd have a quorum. They didn't have enough of a quorum. They only had about five guys. This gives them seven and now they've got enough to transact business and carry out excommunications. And I do think it's interesting that one of the people that they brought was a guy by the name of Alpheus Cutler. Alpheus Cutler, his job was he was the chief architect for the Far West Temple site. One of the things that they did that night, just after midnight, is that he rolls a large stone right to the corner of the, of the Far West Temple site. It's like, we're laying the cornerstone. And the chief builder did that. 
He puts it there. We got it. All right. We laid the cornerstone. Excommunicate the guys. Add the new 12. See you later. We're heading back to Quincy in the middle of the night. Okay? I just love that these guys are saying, we will follow the Lord's commandments exactly. There is, and tell me this isn't Brigham Young. If the Lord commands, we will do it. And we will be right there. Okay? Brigham once said, through all this process, only two, men, two members of the Quorum of the Twelve were completely faithful through the entire thing and never ever defected. Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball. Everybody else. Orson Pratt had his days. Parley had his days. Everybody else. Orson Hyde had his days. Everybody struggled for some period of time except for these two guys. Okay, so they do that. Now, but along with that, I, I want to, sh uh, just to give you a little background on, on this little visit to uh, the Far West Temple site. Um, at one point, as, as, they're, as they are, uh, as the mobs have taken over Far West, uh, Brother Turley is one of those that goes back. Uh, Captain Bogart, who was the country judge, Dog and Lafferty, John Whitmer, who'd been Joseph's scribe for a long time, came into the committee's room and presented to Theodore Turley the paper containing the revelation of July 8th, 1838. They knew John Whitmer had written this revelation as it fell from Joseph's lips. And and they're saying the revelation of July 8th to Joseph Smith directing the twelve to take their leave of the saints in far west and on the building site of the Lord's house on, on 26th April to go to the Isles of the Sea. Ask Turley to read it. Turley said, gentlemen, I'm well acquainted with it. They said, then you as a rational man will give up Joseph Smith being a prophet and inspired man. He and the twelve are now scattered all over creation. Let them come here. If they dare, if they do, they will be murdered. As that revelation cannot be fulfilled, you will now give up your faith. Turley reported that he jumped up and said, in the name of God, the revelation will be fulfilled. They laughed him to scorn. John Whitmer, Turley said, hung down his head. They said, if the, if the twelve come, they will get murdered. They dare not come, take their leave. And that is like the rest of all of Joseph Smith's prophecies. Okay, So the mob, and, and Missouri was well aware that the twelve were going to try and come back on April 26th. And by the way, if they don't, it's, an, it's also proof that Joseph is a false prophet. Brigham Young was determined to make that prophecy true. Now, this next event, I think most of us have probably heard at one moment or another. I just think it's great. As the saints were passing after the meeting that night, Brother Turley said to Elders Page and Woodruff, Stop a bit while I bid Isaac Russell goodbye. Isaac Russell was one that they had just excommunicated in that meeting and was still living there outside Far West. Called Brother Russell. Brother Russell, stunned to see Brother Turley standing in front of him, he asked him to sit down. Brother Turley replied, I cannot, I shall lose my company. Who is your company? inquired Russell. The Twelve. The Twelve. Yes, you don't know that this is 
20, this is the 26th, and the day that the twelve were to take their leave of their friends on the foundation of the Lord's house and go to the isles of the sea. The revelation is now fulfilled, and I am going with them. Russell was speechless, and Turley bid him farewell. <laughs> Do you get a feeling that it took a little pluck <laughs> for these guys in those days? I, I, I just think there is a certain amount of uh, the, the Yiddish term is chutzpah. <laughs> you gotta have some chutzpah <laughs> that I'm gonna go ahead and make this thing happen. Now, let me ask, why would they do this? Uh, what, if they're just trying to go to, to England, wouldn't it? Couldn't they have just left from Quincy? Why would, why would they go to these lengths? That's quite a length, okay? I think there was a strong sentiment back in those days, you know, the legality of the church and doing things precisely right. Right. You know, and that gets into the signs and tokens of the temple and all of that stuff. That, so that some things are supposed to be done with precision. Right. Yeah. Right. You ever cringe a little bit when the, de when the priest is blessing the sacrament and he messes up like three or four times? Don't you? There's a part of me that goes, oh, come on. You know, he's got it. No. <laughs> Don't embarrass this kid. It'd be nice. <laughs> Some things are to be done with precision, are they not? Yeah. I think they felt that they were going to go to England if they wanted God's full support. And they wanted to be sure they'd done everything they were supposed to do. I think that's a great point. He says if the, if the 12 knew they were going to England, I mean, picture that. I mean, that's a little bit like saying, we're sending you guys to the moon. You know, I don't know how that's going to turn out for you, but good luck. I mean, that's just like, oh, that's pretty foreign concept. So you're right. They probably felt like they needed all the help they could get from the Lord. We're trying to do everything we can. Will you please bless us on... I think that's a great point. Yeah. I think doing that helped them to... It was, it was a test, in some ways, of obedience. Yeah. Doing what they had to do, or what the Lord required, and I think that kind of gave them that strength to, they felt their faith. So as they went out and they were fulfilled, they knew they could do that. They did that hard thing. It seems off strange, but they did it, and it gave them strength. It, it, it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit, not on the same scale, but kind of an Abrahamic kind of thing that says, the Lord knew that Brigham Young was capable of this, but they didn't know it yet. So their test of obedience was a sign to them that they could be obedient even in really hard moments. Even if, did this, now, just from a make sense standpoint, like if you're, if you're like attacking the church, this is a pretty stupid mission. <laughs> Isn't it? This is kind of dumb. If you guys think you're going to go off to England and, and preach Joseph Smith, why are you dumb enough to go all the way back to Missouri? That, that makes no sense. But to believers, it says the Lord has required this of us and we will do it. How many times are there times in the church that you may go, well, that doesn't make any sense at all? And there's sometimes some absurded, absurdness. That's a word? Yeah. I think another lesson maybe to look at is they were protected, obviously. Everybody knew the date, time. Oh, yeah, that's what makes that so amazing. Say the same thing about call, callings or impossible things. 
Yeah, that even if other people know, the Lord knows even more. The Lord knew. The, did the Lord know that that Zion would fall? Mm-hmm. Did He know that the that these twenty people were going to have to go through the cover of darkness over hundreds of miles, and and but by the way, have to figure out a way to pull this off? Oh, He knew that, but they didn't know that. So part of it is the Lord asks us. Um, to do things and maybe once we know what the commandment is then it's our job to make it happen. I was led by the Spirit not knowing beforehand what I would do. I know I'm going to have to do it and, and in Nephi's case by the way it's like oh not that one. Yeah. I'm willing to do it but not that particular way. That You're asking me to do the hard one. Yeah. That's kind of a messy deal. And it seems like a cowardly way to do it, to cut off a guy's head who's drunken in the middle of the night. That, that seems absurd. By the way, I was listening to a, a podcast the other day where somebody's still attacking that thing. Well, that was just wrong. Nephi was just, that can't be. Because ne- not only did Nephi do it, he then wrote it. <laughs> I'll put it in my record. Here's what I had to do. I think the, the fact that it's at the first part of the Book of Mormon says, sometimes the Lord asks a lot of us. That's why we sing in this, we just sang in the song, sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. Yeah? Sometimes that sacrifice almost seems too much. Yeah? I think the last few weeks in, in this example, too, is how the Lord is trying to teach them to trust Him. Yeah. Because uh, if you're going to go all the way to England, and that was a dangerous, that was not an easy trip, a lot of things could happen. Yeah. And you're going to have to learn from the very beginning, you're going to have to listen to me. Got to trust me. Got to trust me. It doesn't make any sense. Now, from a make sense standpoint, I don't know if you've necessarily thought through this. And again, we will talk about it a lot more next week. We're going to talk about England next week. Um, but at the moment that the church is scattered, and right, and Joseph is in jail, and the church is being run by the twelve, where should the twelve be? In the midst of the church. Where is Joseph Smith sending them? Off to England. So at the very moment when they're needed the most to run the church, he said, by the way, this church is now moving forward. We're not skipping a beat. We're sending the missionaries out. And specifically, we're sending the twelve. The very people that should be running the church are are now going to be sent off. Now, as it turns out, Joseph will be out of jail, can actually step up and take over at least for a couple of months. He's going to send the twelve off. They will be gone. And then Joseph leaves. That, again, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but, where's Joseph going to go? Well, here's the problem. Joseph never lost sight of Zion. Never lost sight of that. He wanted Zion to be redeemed. Uh, and everybody has lost their property and they've lost their land. Uh, we went to the courts in Missouri. Um, it didn't work. The, the mob would keep even the, the witnesses from coming in to, to testify in court. We go to the governor. The governor of Missouri signed an extermination order against us. Where do we go next? 
We'll go, to, we'll go to the federal government because Joseph believed the Constitution was divinely inspired. If we can't get it from the state, we will now go to the federal government. Uh, Sidney Rigdon apparently first came up with this idea to uh, go to Washington, D.C. Um, and in fact, the governor of Illinois actually wrote a recommendation for Sidney Rigdon to present to President Van Buren. Uh, and Sidney got ill and wasn't able to do it, so they actually had to change the written thing on there to say Joseph Smith, because it was really supposed to be Sidney Rigdon. But Joseph is now stepping up. I'm not going to wait for you, Sidney. I will go speak to the president myself. And I will bring Elias Higby, who is an appointed judge in Missouri, and we are off and running. Oh, by the way, we ought to have somebody else with us to protect us in case we run into Missourians along the way. Who else should we bring to go along with us? Orson Porter Rockwell. Yes. Porter Rockwell is going to go with these guys on the trip. So we will have him riding shotgun, uh, which is a little bit different from the old days. And I digress, but I think it's a great story of, of the days when Brigham Young would be uh, riding down from Salt Lake down to, the, down to St. George and Cedar City to go visit the Saints. And they got a string of wagons and they would go through Cove Fort built by the Hinckleys, you know, to stop off and everything. But in between there and St. George, they'd be in their wagons and everything, and Porter Rockwell's in the very best wagon, drunk on his head, singing at the top of his voice. <laughs> they were a little different back then. <laughs> okay. Um, but they take Porter Rockwell with them, and off they go to Washington. Um, I'm going to uh, come back to that one. Uh, okay, um, now, I, I'm going to come back to this. Okay. So off they go. Uh, the, the, the story occurs now that perhaps you, you might have heard. Um, they leave Sidney Rigdon behind, and uh, these three brethren... Uh, Joseph and Higby and Rockwell take a stage uh, and they're pushing through the, the mountains to get to Washington, D.C. The, 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 the guy that's running the stage uh, gets thirsty and they pull off at a, uh, an inn and he goes in to get grog. He's going to get ale. He's, he's parched, he's thirsty, he's getting something to drink. Everybody else waits in the stage. Okay. Well, while he is liquoring up <laughs> in, the in the inn, something comes along and scares the horses and the stage takes off at a high rate of speed. And it's just rolling through kind of country roads and it's going really, really fast. And there is a woman in the stage uh, that uh, has a baby and she's afraid that the stage is going to crash and the baby will be killed. So she makes a move to throw the baby out the window. <laughs> Better odds, I guess, to throw the baby. Not out with the bathwater, just out of the stage. Uh, at that point, the, this, this tall man in the stage stands up and says, Ma'am, don't do that. I will save us. <laughs> and it's right out of the westerns. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, is this going down legally split down the, uh, ma'am, I will take care of this. And, and he opens the stage door and he's riding on it just like John Wayne. And it's just like, a, you know, and he's going to climb across, across here so he can get up on top of the stage. And it's going like crazy. And he gets up there. Whoa! Oh, there's this whole thing. And, you know, and it takes about three miles of all of this to finally he's able to bring the stage to a halt. And the, and the woman goes, Wow, thank you. Do I need to know your name? Yes, I'm Joseph Smith. The Mormon prophet? Yes, that's me. Oh. <laughs> wow, he's a hero. Okay. Uh, true story. Uh, but that's part of this journey to go back to Washington, D.C. Um, he will, he will, uh, so they will arrive in, in, uh, in, in uh, Washington, D.C., late September 1839. This is what uh, Washington, D.C. kind of looked like back then. Uh, a lot of, that's the mall. Uh, the green stretch there is the mall. Oh my goodness. Because uh, I found an 18, 1840 picture wow. yeah, of Washington, D.C. Um, so Joseph and, and Elias Higby, Judge Higby, then grab a uh, state senator from Illinois and they, they go down Pennsylvania Avenue, they go up to the White House and they Hello! <laughs> We're here to see the president. <laughs> uh, and the porter lets them in. And they're able to sit down and have a, have a sit down with President Van Buren. Uh, now, uh, they are able to then meet with him. Uh, Joseph says he's kind of a dandy. Uh, he's overly dressed. They had made all kinds of changes to the White House, so it was overly ornate, and they and, and all kinds of airs and stuff like that. And he just like, oh, it looks more like a monarchy, and and just. But but uh, Van Buren was also in for a tough race. Re-election race coming in 1840, and Missouri was one of his key states that he needed that were voting for him. Uh, and, and so this, he, now and then again in February, he will tell them, there's not a whole lot I can do for you guys. Uh, I will lose Missouri, but on top of that, it's still a battle between states' rights and federal rights. How much can the federal government kick in here? Uh, so Joseph will then not be getting much satisfaction there, he will now spend the next almost six months in Washington, D.C. He's talking to senators. He is preaching publicly all over. Uh, he will actually go up to Philadelphia and meet with some large branches in Philadelphia. Uh, so he makes it like a six-month mission. He's preaching a lot. And he's preaching a lot about... Um, what's happened to them in Missouri but for the first time that we have on record the big meeting takes place in Philadelphia and I believe it's in December or January and there are 3,000 people at this at this large meeting in Philadelphia Parley Pratt is there and Parley uh, says that Joseph electrified the crowd with his uh, explanation of the first vision and the angel Moroni and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. 
first time that we really have that he's preached a major massive sermon on those these very private moments that he'd had but finally now the public is getting to know I am who I am because here's what I did and here's how the Book of Mormon came to be and and the angel Moroni and he says they were electrified by tales of angels and all that and it just lit them up and and Parley Pratt said I've never heard such preaching now this ain't the Joseph that went into liberty it really isn't this is the Joseph that says, I'm kind of taking off the covers and I'm going to now be much more open. Now, he will then spend the rest of his time going now into Washington. He will preach a number of times about what happened to them in Missouri. And he stirs up a lot of public sentiment uh, for the saints and tries to get a petition. They actually ask for about $3 million in reparations. Uh, they, will get turn, they will get turned down. They will be told no. Uh, but, but that will act, he, for the first time, he's publicly in Washington, D.C., putting their, their case to the nation. Okay? But that's six months of preaching. Now, we do get, part of, put that in, in uh, context, uh, John Reynolds, who was a, uh, was a, a uh, newspaper man, publicist, journalist, uh, went to several, got to know Joseph really well. And he went to several of the times that Joseph preached. And so it's nice to have somebody, kind of a first-hand explanation. This is a letter to his wife. I heard, I heard Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, speak. Here's what, he, and let me describe him. So we get this description of Joseph post-Liberty Jail, which I think is kind of fun. Here's what he says. Smith, the prophet, remained in Washington a great part of the winter and preached often in the city. I became well acquainted with him. He was a person rather larger than ordinary stature, well proportioned. They used to say that Van Buren was not well proportioned. He was short and portly. Well proportioned and would weigh, I presume, about 180 pounds. He was rather fleshy. Well, he'd been in jail for, you know, five months. But was in his appearance, her appearance, amiable and benevolent. He did not appear to possess any harshness or barbarity in his composition, nor did he appear, and I thought this was very interesting, nor did he appear to possess that great talent and boundless mind that would enable him to accomplish the wonders he performed. That's kind of damning with faint praise. <laughs> he does not possess the great talent and boundless mind that would enable him to accomplish the wonders he performed. <laughs> this wasn't really the guy that wrote the Book of Mormon, <laughs> you know? How he did it is, is amazing because it just is not necessarily coming from this big, raw bone, friendly, amiable guy. This ain't him. But wow, has he done a lot. So, anyway, I thought that was, that was pretty great. All right. So, let me kind of, maybe kind of start setting up for the next couple of days here. Next couple of times. Um, we're going to talk, uh, we're not going to get to Nauvoo until January. Uh, we're going to talk about England next week, and then I've got the Bethlehem story that we're going to do 45 minutes on uh, kind of the real story.
of, of Bethlehem. Uh, and then we will start in, in Nauvoo, uh, what, the second week of January, I guess. But I, I think it's interesting to note that part of what Joseph does when he gets to Quincy, uh, Illinois, was he's got, the, they've made the arrangements now with Isaac Galland on this uh, bend in the Mississippi. Joseph goes up and takes a look at it and says, uh, it's a wilderness. <laughs> Commerce was so unhealthy, very few could live there. No more eligible place, this is in his history, no more eligible place presented itself, I considered it wisdom, to make an attempt to build up a city. So he wasn't real impressed. Um, these days, by the way, if you have been to uh, Nauvoo and you and you come in on the river road uh, from from Warsaw, and you're, you're coming into town, and you make that big that big bend just past Parley Street, and then up the street, and there's the temple up there. Next time you're driving along there, look off to the side. The canals are still there. The Pioneer canals are still there that they dug to drain off the swamp. Uh, off there because it was so swampy. Um, we're going to find out uh, in January that the two most prominent uh, events that happened in Nauvoo were baptisms and burials. So many burials that they were done on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, so it was pretty unhealthy and this was the house that they moved in at right there on the, we'd almost be standing in the Mississippi River from where we're standing right there. Okay. Um, and, he, and it's interesting that when he gets there, he's going to designate this a stake of Zion. He doesn't call it Zion. This is a stake of Zion. Kirtland was a stake. Um, Nauvoo will be a stake. Zion is in Missouri. There are no, there's no Garden of Eden here. There's no Adam blessing his There's no biblical stuff here. I think he saw Nauvoo as kind of temporary from the get-go. Okay, so there's no religious history attached to that. Um, so let me finish with this. Um, and it's one of the... the before he leaves, um, and again, this story we know really well, but I just, I just think it's a good one to end on. Before he leaves for Washington, uh, the people are in weakened state. They've come across Missouri. Uh, they're, they're in Quincy. Now they're going to get up into uh, Nauvoo area, and it's going to be uh, the middle of the summer. Uh, anybody ever been in Nauvoo in like June, July, August? Yeah. <laughs> it can get uh, pretty hot, sweaty, humid right there, it, and it was. Uh, but the swamps weren't yet drained, so the mosquitoes were bad, and, and they all came down with the ague, <laughs> uh, malaria, and, that, and, the, and the death started. Um, his scribe James Mulholland will be one of the one of the people to die in that that fall. And by the way, the when you go the the temple is located on Mulholland Street. I mean, it, it goes up there, named after James Mulholland. Um, but you remember how, if we go back, this was really one of the only two cabins. The uh, that was added. 
So here's the original cabin that the Smiths were living in. And then there's a, there was a little uh, wash area in the back here that the older Smiths, uh, jo uh, Lucy Mack and, and Joe Smith Sr. lived back here. But the Smiths were here. It's the only place in town. As people are dying of malaria, uh, they're coming to Joseph to be healed, for Emma to take care of them. And so what they're doing is they're all lying all, all over the place here, inside the house, outside the house, hundreds of people uh, sick from malaria, and there's really no other place to go. Um, and you recall the... Um, the moment when Joseph is just overwhelmed by all of this, he's feeling sick himself, and then he gets up, and he says, that's enough, and he begins to heal. And we watch this wave of healings, and he starts, he starts in this area right in front of the house, uh, and then after he's been healing all day, then he will cross over, he will get on a boat, because the other group are in Montrose, right across the river. Uh, he will go across, um, And Wilford Woodruff will be there, uh, and he, as he's healing, a man comes to Joseph and he says, My twins are dying, would you come he heal them? And Joseph is just overwhelmed, and that's when he turns to Wilford Woodruff and he pulls this handkerchief out of his, out of his pocket. Now, I don't know how he had that handkerchief in his pocket. How many have seen this uh, handkerchief? Oh, ho, ho. Um, you need to, it is now on permanent display in the Church History Museum right across from Temple Square. Uh, they really didn't bring it out until a few years ago when they were doing a, a, a special uh, a showing of some of the events of the Restoration. Um, Cindy and I were there not too long ago. This, this handkerchief is now on permanent display uh, as you walk through the museum. Um, Along with, there, there's, this, this sits right on display, and then right over there is uh, Hiram Smith's clothes that he was wearing during the martyrdom. He, they've got him laid out kind of on a mannequin there. It's a little macabre, but it gives you a chance to kind of see what that looked like. But that's, that's the handkerchief. This handkerchief is, I don't know, about, about four feet tall. He's a monster. He's about like that. It's, like, it's more like a little blanket. That was the handkerchief. Uh, we think part of it got cut out. A little stretch right there. Actually, they usually have it sitting the other way around. But there's a little part cut out. Some, we think somebody chose that part of, for a souvenir. But Wilford Woodruff. Whoops. Did I not include this? No, I didn't include the story. Okay. Um, Wilford Woodruff uh, it receives this handkerchief from Joseph, and before, before he leaves, Joseph presses this into his hand and says, Take the handkerchief and, and bless and anoint the sick, and then when you're done, take this handkerchief and wipe their face with it, and they will be healed. And... and Wil Wilford Woodruff said, yes, that's exactly how it worked. I did that, and those that I wiped with the handkerchief were healed. But before he finishes, Joseph says, and then hold on to this handkerchief, and it will be an eternal covenant between my family and your family. That this will be a bond of brotherhood and fellowship between us, and this handkerchief will be the token between us. So it was held on as a sacred 
kind of uh, remembrance between the Woodruff family and Joseph Smith, and finally they donated it to the church. And like I say, if you go into the, if you're, next time you're in Salt Lake, you must go into the New Church History Museum because of the things that they now have on display that I've never seen before. This one I'd seen once before, but it's it's now out there. Um, so let me just finish with this then. Um, <coughs> And then next week, we'll also talk about the history that he starts to write and what he puts in the history. Liberty changed Joseph. It, 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 it altered how he felt. It altered how he saw himself. And he saw the, that he needed to become not just the revelator, translator, but he needed to stand up and be the statesman that the Lord intended him to be to provide the leadership going forward. And in Nauvoo, he would be all of that. He would go, uh, I think it was uh, James Talmadge, or B.H. Roberts. B.H. Roberts said that, this, that Joseph lived his life in crescendo. I love that. He lived his life in crescendo. He was still expanding and growing when he was killed in 1844. And the, and the events that watching this, just this summer and winter after he comes out of liberty, you just see him growing and he becomes fully the prophet that he was in Nauvoo. But it was the experiences in liberty that helped shape and get him there. Um, I pray that uh, as we kind of look at this part of our history that, that you get a chance to see if he can grow from and learn from his experiences, we can too. And we had to take the chance to use the adversity and things that come into our life to allow us to live in crescendo as well. Because the Lord intends to do that. Uh, I pray that we can do that and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our eternal Heavenly Father, as we come to the close of this institute class,